Hello, my beautiful people. Welcome to Permission to Think. I'm Edvin Rustrian, and I'm glad you're joining me today. Thank you to all of you who week after week tune in to Permission to Think. My desire is to push our thinking, encourage you, and remind you that there's always hope regardless how bad things get. I hope this podcast has blessed you and added value to your life. Today's episode is the third of a short series on the topic of marriage. We will go deep through the many challenges young married couples face, stages in marriage, pitfalls, unrealistic expectations, and the daunting and adverse effect of divorce and what God has to say on marriage and divorce. You definitely don't want to miss this series. Share it with a friend, other married couples, and young adults who are engaged. The data and statistics on the state of marriage, especially among Christian families, is frightening. And now, let's give ourselves permission to think. In this episode, we're going to discuss the reasons why marriage is difficult, almost impossible, and what God says about marriage and his desire to be not just part of it, but in our marriages. In this series, we have asked the questions, what is your definition of marriage? Is your marriage a social contract? Is your marriage a pledge to each other? What were your motivations for marriage? Are you getting out of your marriage what you originally wanted or anticipated? Is the institution of marriage a complete failure? What would you get out of your marriage that you wouldn't receive by remaining single? These were the questions that when we began this series, we asked because it is important to think about these things to gain some perspective as to where you are in your journey of life and in your journey in a relationship with someone and where that journey is taking you. Maybe you're thinking about getting married or maybe you are just recently married and you're noticing that there's changes and there's adjustments and there's shifts. Or maybe you've just been married for 10 years or 15 years and you're just kind of stuck in your marriage and you just don't know what to do. And so a lot of people associate those feelings and emotions that you think that you're falling out of love uh, with, with that person, with your spouse, and things have not turned out the way you thought that they should. And what do you do then? Um, what, what is the purpose of then staying together because for the sake of the children, for the sake of the appearances. And so these are really hard questions to answer sometimes. And I think that when our perspective changes and when the vicissitudes of life come and hit us uh, with, all it, with all it's got, that our, our, our attention is focused and we are often driven by doubt and by fear and by the unknown. But today's episode... We're really going to focus from a, a Judeo-Christian perspective. And maybe for you, you might say, Evan, uh, I just don't believe in the Bible. I just don't believe in this religious thing. I just want you to hear me out and, you know, um, just take a moment to really think about this. And maybe if, if it's not for you, then, you know, um, just maybe you can grab something that of value that can add something to you. But just, just kind of listen to how I'm going to break and unpack a lot of God's perspective in marriage 
and how he designed it and what his desire is to today to be part of. And so we're going to go back to Genesis um, the, when God created Adam and Eve and, and how he established the family, how he was the first one and how did that originate and what happened? What happened at the fall? What happened with uh, the serpent coming and being cunning and, and deceiving Eve and how did that impact where we are today? So I'm going to start the, 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 this episode with uh, perhaps the topic or subtopic of the perfect design. And this perfect design is, is found in, in Genesis 1.27. And again, from a Judeo-Christian perspective, it is important to understand that the institution of marriage, a bond between a man and a woman, was created and designed by God himself. As we unpack the creation story, we will see that the union of marriage was designed as a covenant. Now, that's a word we don't usually hear today, but a covenant, a pact between God, between husband and wife and God as the third being in the union. And in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, it says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And here we see that God out of the dust, out of the earth, makes Adam. And we're going to go into how he was very specific and detailed in the creation of Eve. But we are designed and created in God's image. That is very powerful. And when you read now verse 28, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves underground. These two verses are just so powerful in understanding that God's design has always been to be fruitful and be multiplied. He didn't say just for a little while until the earth becomes populated and then we'll see what happens there. The idea that when God creates something, it, he creates it with this intent of sustainability. Sustainability for the longevity of how long we live on this earth. Because of our sinful nature, we have this scarcity mindset that we often worry about what we're not going to have enough of to survive. And when we look at God's creation, when we look at how he created us and designed us, we, he designed us to be creative as well, to be innovative and to be intuitive into making and building things. And we and that is the, the aspect of being also created in his image is one of the characteristics but in his perfect design, he created us to be in perfect union and relationship with him. He is not just part of our routine of what we do. He is in everything that we do. And that is important to first start there, that we are not created in someone else's image. We are created in the image of God. We are created, in, um, we were created male and female in his image to what? To over everything that he has given us command to. Now, George McDonald, he wrote this beautiful uh, uh, part and it says, uh, I would rather be what God chose to make me than the most glorious creature that I could think of. For to have been thought about, born in God's thoughts, and then made by God is the dearest, grandest, most precious thing in all thinking. I want you to really think about that, right? Like 
to rather think that God chose to make you, to make me, is the most glorious thing for anyone to ever think of, right? Whatever you think you could desire to make of yourself, right? Because this idea to create something was birthed out of a thought. Born, we were born out of God's thoughts and desires to be in relationship with him, to be with him. And that is so beautiful because we're constantly fighting for this identity of saying like, what is my purpose? Where's my identity? Where am I going? And the thought that we were birthed in his thought and he birthed that thought into creation for us to have that, that union with him, it is beautiful. So the union of marriage was uniquely and meticulously crafted by God, right? And think about this. It's his desire for what? Why did he desire? What was his desire and his intent in creating us? And that is a valuable thought as well. When we think about the relationship that he desires to have with us, it is not for a little while. It is for the length of our eternity, not just in what this little dash on the earth that we have from our birthday to our end, right? That's that's just a little bit. That's that's a little like a little tiny grain of sand in the eternity of our existence. And yet we make such a big deal about the things that we don't have in this earth, and we feel so incomplete. And not that only comes because we're not in relationship with our heavenly Father. So let me share with you. We're going to look at this a little closer in the story, okay? Now we're going to unfold. Remember, we are created in God's image, male and female, for um, relationship with him, but to also have power and dominion over all other created things, right? So now let's move on to chapter 2 of Genesis, and we're going to read from 18 to 25. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. I want you to hold on to that word helper because we're going to focus a little more. Um, we're going to go a little deeper into that aspect of helper. Um, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a suitable helper, a comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man and Adam said this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man therefore a man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Let me unpack this a little because there's a lot going on here. In verse 18, it says, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. God himself made woman. He was so 
in in meticulously um, desired to to in how he designed woman to be. Now, in in the verse that it says in the English translation, it says. Um, uses the word helper and and we have to go a little deeper than that and to really research within the Hebrew aspect of the story what does that word helper really translate so I want to highlight quickly that every other creature including Adam was made from the earth Eve was not she was made from the rib taken from Adam but let's look closely at the word helper okay we must look at the Hebrew translation of the creation story and the specific meaning of words related to Eve and this is going to give us great insight into how um, how a woman and how God designed Eve to be in Hebrew the word for helper used in Genesis 2 18 and 20 is azer and it is always and is um and it is always and used in the Old Testament in the context of vitally important and powerful acts of rescue and support. So when we look at the word helper in the English aspect of the use of word, it's used as someone who can just kind of assist us in the trivial things of life. That, you know, um, when you have someone just kind of, you have a project and somebody's just going to help you get the minimal things done. In the Hebrew context of the word azer, it isn't seen that way. The impact that the woman has is even greater. It's not used in the most trivial aspect or the most simplistic, but it's a vital, important, and powerful act of rescue and support. So think about that for a moment. Eve was designed and created by God to be vitally important to Adam's life, to be a powerful act of rescue when what? When Adam was perhaps not thinking right or was not 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 doing what he was supposed to do, or maybe he felt overwhelmed. Or there's an aspect that we all know that women have that men don't have. Some people call it and this aspect in women an intuition. Others call it discernment. But there is something genuinely powerful about women that we cannot diminish. And that was the intent and the purpose in which God created Eve. And so when we look at that context, God never diminishes the value of woman. Religion does. But God, in essence, elevates and gives the importance of women so that we may understand that we are to love our wives. We are to love and respect them and and be so engaged in their way of life that when we are thinking we are one flesh, we are one, we are in everything that we do, not half, not a little bit, but in everything that we do we are one because that's the way God originally designed it now Robert Alter a renowned expert on Hebrew literature and language highlights the implicit strength of the word azer help he says is too weak because it suggests a merely auxiliary function whereas azer elsewhere connotes uh, active intervention on behalf of someone especially in military context, as often in Psalms. Robert Alter translates Azer as a sustainer beside him. That is so powerful to think about because when you look at, right, when you look at this aspect in the English word just as help, as helper, just as he says it, beautifully described, merely auxiliary function, right? But in the other context of, of, of what he says in the Hebrew aspect, it, it kind of shows this intervention of behind, uh, of, on behalf of someone. 
That is powerful. Then we can then see how Psalms 121, 1 and 2, if we look at it from the lens of this active intervention of this um, other element that we described earlier, this vital, important, and powerful act of rescue, then we understand the words of David in Psalms 121, 1 and 2, where it says, I will lift my eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. My azer, where is that coming from? My help, my azer comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He's not saying just my, like, this this passive auxiliary help. He's talking about someone who is going to intervene, someone who is going to rescue him, someone who is going to come in and do a powerful act on his behalf. It changes the entire meaning of that sentence. So that's why words matter. And sometimes people, we look for translations to really kind of now communicate what we try to communicate. But there's something about the Hebrew aspect of the interpretation of words and semantics, that the, the meaning of these words are so powerful to really understand. Eve was not just a suitable helper comparable to him. She was Azer. She was that vital essence that Adam was not. It completed him to be one, right? So Azer describes aspects of God's character. He is our strength, our rescue, our protector, our Azer. And Azer is the word God used to describe the first woman. Eve was someone who would give vital strength to Adam. And this is the role of a woman designing the perfect covenant of God. Can you put your name in there? Can you put your wife's name in there? Right? For me, my wife is, Betsy is someone who gives me strength. Someone who comes and rescues me out of my turmoil, my mind, and my spiritual. She intervenes for me. She is there to pick me up with her words. Oh, wow. What a beautiful thought to think about. If you can describe your wife in that way, your partner in life, to say, you were designed for me in my most difficult times, and I was designed for you so that we can both become one. It is in that covenant. It is in that act. It is in that characteristics in which we are designed to be in perfect communion with God. God does not trivialize women. God does not diminish or objectifies women. The enemy does that. We're going to go a little into deeper than that, right? And so, in an article from Israel Bible Weekly, I came across this aspect. And the English word... Eve is not the original name for the first human female. Her name was Hava in Hebrew, which has a root connotation with the verb to live in Hebrew, communicating the idea of life. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living things. That is so powerful to understand. She was the mother of all living things. Life lives within a woman's womb. Life lives within the design of her name, right? The mother of all living things. Let's look at verse 23 and 24, right? It says, and Adam said, this is now bones of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She has been called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
this is so beautifully because now the way that Adam describes is this is now bones of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So if you love your, yourself and if you love the way you are made, then if Eve was made out of the bones of Adam, out of the ribs of Adam, how can he mistreat her? How can he verbally abuse her, physically abuse her, emotionally abuse her? How can he ever get to the point of degrading her, objectifying her? These are not words that are common in the context of someone that says, you are bones of my bones, I'm flesh of my flesh. I'm going to love you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to do everything that I can to make sure that you know each and every day how much I am committed and loving you. These are words that are only found when God is in your marriage. When God is not part of your marriage, then we're going to talk about where that stems from as well. So the perfect design of marriage was established by God. God put great deal of emphasis in creating Eve and her role and function related to her husband, Adam. She was the mother of all the living. What a powerful statement and the descriptor of the role of woman in relation with her husband. We must ponder the question, why did God create humans? Think about this. If if, if we believe the Bible to be true, then we believe this Judeo aspect of the creation story, right? Then why did God create humans? According to Dad Patterson and Ryan Rokes, God created humans for deep and meaningful relationships. Humans were created for good, to love God, love each other, and cultivate the planet. The entire shape of this creation is said to have brought God delight. Eden was the good life because we were there with God. Eden was the good life because we were there with God. That is so beautiful. We were meant to what? To love God. We were created for good, to love each other and cultivate the planet. This this thought of that we were designed or not created or now allow another human to experience the relational aspect that God desires to have with us and deprive them of such, it is something that I believe that we need to really address. Right? So think about it. Let me just, before I transition to the other part. In the creation, we are created in his image, male and female. God made us to be creative, to be in perfect covenant with him. Then God goes and designs women because a woman because Adam did not have a suitable comparable helper, an azer, right? So here comes God and perfectly meticulously designed woman from one of his ribs, the closest thing to him, and then designs this for the specific function for Adam. And then he calls her Eve as the mother of all living. What a beautiful descriptor that God, when he makes something, he makes it good. And at the end of everything that he created each day, he calls it good. He calls it good. It was for his delight. It was for his pleasure. So think about this. You and I were created for his pleasure. We were created to be in perfect communion with him. And that's what God desires. But wait a minute. I wish that the story would have ended there, right? And we wouldn't have what we have today. So let me give you this concept of paradise laws. And no, this is not a reference to John Milton's paradise laws, right? 
But this is the paradise laws in our covenant in our marriage. Paradise laws is Adam and Eve's exile from the Garden of Eden after the fall. The name Eden, okay, the name Eden, the place, the garden by which they were, it is translated to be place of pleasure and delight. The Garden of Eden was God's gift to Adam and Eve. What a beautiful um, imagery, right, that you can picture. God creates Adam, he creates Eve, and he creates this perfect place of true, of true pleasure and delight to be and walk with God, to wake up every single second and God will walk in their midst. God was present every, in everything that he had designed and created. And now, our story shifts. Here, our story takes a different turn. And I'm gonna read from Genesis 3, 1 through 9. So just bear with me and just take this in and just listen carefully. And we're gonna unpack this a little bit. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat, or, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were both, that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and his wife hid themselves in the presence, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? And this last question in this verse 9, it says, where are you? It's not a matter where God didn't know where he was. It was a matter of a GPS location. It was a matter of relationship. Where are you? Something has shifted. Now, I want you to pay attention to this cunning serpent, right? Here's the enemy's first question. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Here he comes in with doubt. Here comes in with the questioning. Here comes in with the intrigue. And there, there are a couple of things to highlight here. He says, right, um, you will not surely die, right? Right off the bat, it's a statement, right? comes in you will not surely die he says for god knows that in the day you eat of your eyes your eyes will be open and you will be like god knowing good and evil and the woman's desire she begins to kind of go through this in her mind right and kind of listen to those words it was the other things that piqued her interest and her desire to be like what hmm maybe this is not so bad she saw that the tree was good, right? Verse six says, so the woman saw that the tree was good for food. 
that it was pleasant to the eye and a tree desirable to make one wise. Look at those three things, right? She saw it, that it was good for food, that it was pleasant according to her eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, their intellect, the desire to know, right? And so she followed and she gave in. And in the enemy's first question, you shall not, uh, he said, has God said indeed, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. There is the doubt. There is the question. Eve's response, we may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And here's the enemy responding again. And I know I don't want to belabor this point, but it's very important to focus on how subtle things can be and how the enemy doesn't come in with this most obvious things in our lives because that's not what he does, right? You're going you're gonna to know what he's up to, but it's the subtlety of things that what intrigues us and what captures our eyes, our interest that appe- it appeals to us to be good is the one thing that ultimately demin- demi- brings us our own demise. Is that same metaphor the same analogy, the same example that we use of the frog, that you put him in cool water, you turn the stove on, and he his body begins to adjust to the temperature, and surely, after long enough, he doesn't even know, but he is being cooked, and then it's too late for him to get out of it. This is the same principle. When in our eyes, things appeal to be good, that appeal to be good to the eye, that we begin to uh, emotionally negotiate, intellectually uh, negotiate with these principles is what ultimately leads us astray from what we were designed to do. Prompted by how cunning the serpent was, Eve gives in and disobeys God along with Adam. This is where it all falls apart. This is the state of a falling world where pride is at the center and sin separates us from God. It's this event that turns the tide of the covenant between God and the first marriage. We were created for good and we became damaged by evil. Now, we can redefine good and evil on our terms. We, we, we can say, no, this is good now. And, and, and no, this is bad. And this is where we are in our society. We don't know the difference between the two anymore. Or maybe we do, but maybe we are defining it in order to serve our own personal justice. We can seize power for ourselves now. In the Garden of Eden, God was very clear with his instructions to do both uh, for, for both Adam and Eve. God warned them that to go against the moral grain and his design will always lead to suffering. And this is where we are today. We want to do it our own way. When we approach a marriage, we want still, we have our goals, we have our desires, individualistic, and we approach the, the, the covenant of marriage within, the, within an individualistic framework. I'm only going to commit to you in the things that I think is convenient for us, but all the other things, I'm going to still practice this individualism. We are one. Bones of my bone, flesh of my flesh, everything. You become one. Everything becomes one because you are committed. And when God is in your marriage, everything looks very, very different. Dan Patterson, Ryan Rooks, to go back to his to his wonderful uh, authors, describes it this way: the enemy of our soul, this malevolent and shadowy creature, tempts humanity to pursue life on their own terms. Isn't that true? Right? Isn't is isn't that our case? Seeking to enlist them in his rebellion by deceiving them into breaking faith with God. 
The snake's lie suggests that there was something we were missing out on by trusting and obeying God. There's a phrase that, that we use today. It's called FOMO, fear missing out. And that was the whole thing. The intrigue that he was trying to convince Eve that, wait a minute, you might be missing out on something. He hasn't been truly honest with you. Because the moment you begin to want to know more, are you going to? You're missing something. And out of that, he convinced them and deceived them, them to break in faith with God. He lied to them, suggesting that they were missing out on the most valuable and the most pleasure out of life by trusting and obeying God. Isn't that the God-honest truth that we have today? That we seek these pleasures, that somehow the more we have them, it just leaves us more void and empty. That leaves us hollow and shallow with no depth and no regard for our own soul and for the people or for our marriages or for the people who are in it. In our marriages and in our lives, we're still listening and committing our lives to obey and believe the lies the cunning snake is telling us. Our way is better than God's way. Itchy ears hear what they want to hear. The one who has your ear has your heart. Let me ask you that question. In your marriage, who has your ear? Who is feeding these things into your ear? Because it's going directly into your heart. Who has your eyes? Because what you're watching and what you're feeding your eyes is feeding your heart. Think about your senses, your ear, what you watch. How is that intruding into your relationship, into your soul, into your heart? What are you desiring that is taking you away from the commitment that God has made to you to give you true pleasure and true delight? What is it that you're seeking, that I'm seeking, that is going to think that it's going to replace the true pleasure that God wants to give us? Who has your ear? Who has your eyes? Who has your heart? Because the Bible says that wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is. In Genesis 3, 9, after the fall, God earnestly seeks Adam for a relationship, asking him, Adam, where are you? Something happened. Once we are, once we were separated from God, we became exposed and vulnerable and susceptible to every attack and destructive act from the evil one. Sickness, suffering, war, destruction, famine, death. God's presence is dangerous for anyone damaged by sin. Our attempt to have the best life, the good life without God is misguided and arrogant and full of pride. You want to know where all this divisiveness is coming from? All this hate is coming from? You want to know why you're, we're believing such a lie to think that everything that our society, the injustice and all this divisiveness that is used so that others can remain to can keep in control and empower where that stems from? It stems, it stems from a sinful nature of the fall of paradise laws where now now her hearts and our behavior has become so rebellious towards God that the mere thought of listening or thinking anything about God is, it is disgusting to us. It is like you, you're, you're so antiquated. You're retrograding. Why are you diminishing us to take us back to a form of religion? And even Jesus himself, when he was on earth, he fought against these religious leaders. So what are you doing? The enemy is subtle in his lies. The enemy is very astute and cunning to today. And there are many of us who still will listen to the serpent instead of God. We believe and we feel that we're 
fear, the fear of missing out on something that you know very well that you're not. But it's when we entertain those things and we take a path towards that direction that when we are completely at our end's wits and we see everything destroyed, we ask the question, how can a loving God allow this to happen? The most beautiful thing, and in my opinion, the most beautiful and powerful thing, the most dangerous thing that God has given us is free will. You can choose to turn this off because it's, it's putting you in a bad place. You can go to another podcast. You can go listen to other music. You can go listen, but at this very moment, maybe God is trying to get your attention. And maybe he is trying to ask you and say, what is misguiding you? Why is your heart full of pride? Why is my heart deceiving me? Why am I focused on all the other things? You want the answer to why there are so much sickness and suffering and war and destruction and famine and death in this world? Maybe because of something that has separated us from him and the moment we are damaged goods and the moment we are full of evil the mere presence of ever standing before a god it is just appalling to us and it's designed because of how the serpent still speaks to us in our ear here is the crux of all of it all our marriages fail when we are not in covenant with god now, this is what James 4.1 says. I want you to listen to this very, very carefully, please, because here's where we unpack this behavior of the destructive nature of what the serpent did to Eve and how it's translating now into our relationships. James 4.1 says this, 1 through 6 says, where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way and fight for it deep inside yourselves. You lust for what you don't have and are willing to kill to get it. You want what isn't yours and will risk violence to get your hands on it. Do we not see that today? If this is the word of God and it was written over 2,000 years ago, it doesn't speak to a specific government. It doesn't speak to the Roman Empire. It doesn't speak to... Mussolini or doesn't speak to Stalin or doesn't speak to any tyrannical government. It speaks to the heart of man. It speaks not to the the Democratic Party, to the Republican Party, whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, whatever it may be. It speaks to the human heart. Our human heart is conditioned to be destructive because of the falling nature that there is. Let me continue reading in James. Now in verse 2, it says, you wouldn't think of Uh, You wouldn't think of just asking God for it, would you? And why not? Because you know you'd be asking for what you have no right to. You're spoiled children, each wanting your own way. You're cheating on God. If all you want is your own way, flirting with the world every chance you get, you end up enemies of God and His way. And do you suppose God doesn't care? The proverb has it that he is a fiercely jealous lover, and what he gives in love is far better than anything else you'll find. It's common knowledge that God goes against the willful proud. God gives grace to the willing humble. What a powerful statement of God's love, but also it it, it exposes the heart of us as human beings. It exposes why we failed in our relationship, why we failed with our children, why we failed with our spouses. It shows the very nature that where it all stems from. 
when, when you read that first verse and it says, where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? They don't just happen. They come from a heart that is so far away from God and desires nothing to do with God. Our relationships fail. Our marriages fail. Our families fail because of our selfish ways. And please listen to me. I'm saying this with all love and respect. I'm saying this with a true, sincere, I am not affiliated to no organization. I am not affiliated to no church. I am am here truly out of my commitment and my desire to just give you a sense of hope and just share these words that will encourage you to look beyond government, to look beyond the social status, to look beyond your own heart and say, what am I truly missing in my life that is not giving it meaning and God may be speaking to you at this very moment and saying hey hey I want to get your attention would you listen to me for a second you're never far far away from God you're never so far with that you're far from his reach and just so the words that I'm speaking as I'm closing this out comes from a place of love not a place of judgment not a place of uh, of, of casting anything other than just to draw an awareness of why is it that we are failing our children, our institutions, our marriages, our churches, our schools, our government, our financial organizations. So just listen to this. Our relationships fail. Our marriages fail. Our families fail because of our selfish ways. We cheat. We lie. We rebel. And we want things our way. We deceive our spouses. We hide things from each other. We desire, we desire what we can't have. We lust after other people and covet what others have. We pursue fame, fortune, and accolades and will sacrifice our family, our marriages at the altar of pride. We watch porn to spice up our marriages. We have other men sleep with our wives and women sleep with our husbands to make our marriages exciting. We sell our children to the media and technology to get rid of them so we can indulge in our own lustful desires. We work 12 to 16 hours a day and seven days a week to keep the status quo and we do religion to appease our conscience so we can call ourselves friends of God. We lost respect and reverence for God. We don't fear him. We are not interested in what he has to say. His ways do not fit our culture and his message is dated. We want it our way. God serves me and I will call on him to serve me and I will question his love when all hell breaks loose and everything falls apart. This is where we are. And this is what breaks my heart. And this is why I pray. And this is what I had to come to terms with. Everything that I wrote here is related in some way or shape or form to my own heart. And maybe I'm just being too vulnerable or just wanted to be genuinely authentic to let you know that we all fall short and we all chase after the wrong thing. But I want to tell you that wherever you are listening to this, that you take a moment to really reflect. You really pause if you drive and maybe you want to pull over and say, God, I, I can't do this anymore. Would you help me? I promise you that he's just waiting to fix your marriage. But it's a matter of surrendering our pride and our will. Don't walk away while there's still an amount of time of grace given to us. 
I believe that our marriages will work when God is in it, not just conveniently part where we want him to be. We are dealing with the biggest epidemic in the world. I will even call it a pandemic in the sense of a fatherless homes. Our families are completely destroyed and we're searching and searching for something to be a substitute for God in our hearts. And there's no such thing. Whatever you create in your mind or whatever you want to make of yourself or think that you should be, it will always fall short in the shallow and in the hollow space of your heart that you and I know very well only belongs and become fulfilled by God. My beautiful people, I know this message is hard to hear, but it's the truth. I love you, and I would be remiss if I didn't speak the truth. We can do better. We can do better by our spouses. We can do better by our children. We can do better by our communities. We can do better in our schools, but it's easier to address everything else by throwing money at it than actually speaking the truth of what is really going to change our society. Make God the center of your life. Marriage, and you will see a big difference. I'm going to leave you with that quote of the day, and it comes from C.S. Lewis. There is but one good, that is God. Everything else is good when he looks to him and bad when it turns from him. Never compromise integrity for comfort. Stay strong.